Some of us who enter into our late 40s, early 50s, we encounter this midlife crisis where we look back over the past of our lives and we think, I have not accomplished my purpose that I thought I was going to accomplish. And many salesmen have gotten rich off of people like us selling boats and whatever fulfills that need of significance. And then some of us, we become retired and we think, do I still have a purpose? What is my purpose? I clean all day. What is my purpose? I, I tell you, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me, you know, I don't remember retired. I'm busier than I was before. I'm like, what were you doing before? And uh, I guess I'll find out. Lord willing. But what we want is we want God to give us and hand package us the next 10 years, the next 15 years. And God never does that because he wants us to live by faith. But that doesn't mean God doesn't give us a purpose. He does give us a purpose. Matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. What God says is if you follow what I want for your life, I'll fill in the details for you of what you are looking for. We find this everywhere in the Bible. In, in uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will... Seek His will in all you do. In other words, seek what He wants you to do with your life, and He will fill in the spaces. That's what brings us purpose. This morning is... No exception, these verses I'm going to read this morning that we're going to study pertain to the purpose of the church. And when I mean the church, I don't mean the building. I mean the ecclesia, the gathering of believers. There is a purpose for you individually. There is a purpose for us collectively, and it is the same. Jesus has been crucified He's died, he's been buried, he's rose again. His disciples are in disarray. There's 11 of them, not 12 now, because Judas went to his own demise. And Jesus appears to them and tells them, I want you to go uh, to Galilee, and I'm going to meet you there on a mountain. And we don't know which mountain. And so the disciples all go to Galilee, and Jesus shows up, and he teaches them, and then he says final last words. And when people say their final last words, this is, this is where they true, this, they're going to tell you. And as Jesus is there, he doesn't tell them individually what's going to happen to each of them for the next 20 years. Instead, he tells them what God's will is for them to accomplish. And uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. What is God's purpose for you and I, no matter whether you're 12, 20, 40, 50, or 80? What is God's purpose for you and I? And when we live out this purpose, he fills in the blanks. This last fall, the staff and I got together and we looked at this passage. And we looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We looked at all the passages of what Jesus said right before he went up to heaven. And they all have this theme. What is our purpose? Our purpose is this. And we redid our mission statement for the church. So this is what it's going to be from now on. Our purpose is that we are to live like Jesus and share him always. It's very simple. We are to live like Jesus and to 
share him always. That is our purpose. That is our life motto. That's what we're supposed to do. So let's read verses 16 through 20 and see how Jesus says this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've taught you, and teaching them to obey all that I've said. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, what is a disciple? Because in this verse, uh, we have several words here. Um, and the main verb of the entire passage is make disciples. Matter of fact, it is the only verb in the entire passage. So really, the purpose statement for the church and for us individually and corporately is for us to make disciples. And then you have going, you have baptizing and teaching as participles that modify the verb make disciple. In other words, the way to make a disciple is to go, is to baptize, is to teach. That makes sense. But I had the question, what is a disciple? Because I've been very confused about this. You see, I've taken classes in seminary about discipleship. I've read books about discipleship. I've heard the church talk about creating processes of discipleship. And I've seen a lot of people talk about discipleship. I've talked about discipleship doing no discipleship. What is a disciple? It's, everybody say simple. We make this so complex. It is simple, y'all. A disciple is someone who learns from a teacher and follows him in what they do. Matter of fact, I will tell you this. Everyone is a disciple of someone. Jesus says, make disciples of me. Not everybody is a disciple of Jesus, but everyone is a disciple of someone. Why? Because we all want to live like someone. Nike, in the early 90s, had this motto, be like Mike. You know what they were selling? Discipleship of Michael Jordan. That's what they were selling. Everyone, it's a lot of people, they listen to rap music, and they want to be like 50 Cent. They want to be like Eminem. They want to be like Tupac. That was way in my day. They want to be like Snoop Dogg. They want to be like, they want to be disciples of the rap artists. That is a disciple. But it's not a disciple to Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who follows him and does what he does. And how how does that come about? Well, there's two ways, really. Go, by the way, is implied in making disciples. You can't make disciples without going and purposefully doing so. The way to make disciples is through baptizing and teaching. I'm going to spend the rest of the time really expositing what these words are, unpacking what these words mean. What does baptism mean here? What does it mean? I'm convinced of this. Um, We're very Western in our thinking, We're very linear. In other words, we're very literal in our thinking. Have you ever heard that every passage of Scripture only has one interpretation? I agree. I agree. But the problem is, is that we look at every passage through Western eyes. And when I look at this verse, I've always had problems with it. I've always thought, Jesus, do you mean 
Go therefore, make disciples by baptizing them in water. And the answer is yes, that's what he means, and no. And that's very confusing. You say, why is that so confusing? Because there is such a thing as symbolism. You know, when we're young kids, we have a hard time grasping symbolic realities. I had a friend once who took his daughter hunting as she was little. And they, they, they were able to successfully kill a caribou. And they went out to fill, fill dress the caribou. And, and, you know, the father said, look, here's the heart. And she looked at the heart, little dear girl, and she said, Daddy, where's Jesus? See, he had taught his daughter that Jesus goes into your heart. She had a hard time with that. And as Westerners, when we read this verse, we have a hard time with it because we think this is why the church argues over baptism. Because baptism has a dual meaning. It's impregnated with two meanings. See, baptism is literally immersing in water. But baptism is symbolic of a new life, a new identity. So when Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, he means literally baptizing. He also means spiritually immersing someone in the teachings of another. Now, I want you to say, prove it. I got skeptics in here. So prove it. Prove it, Jason. You got to prove this. I never heard this at all. Okay. Riddle me this, Batman. How come 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 Paul uses the example of Israel, and he's talking about their faith walk, and he says this, For they were all baptized into Moses, and into the cloud, and into the sea. What in the world is he Is Is Moses a lake? Is this Lake Moses? No, this isn't. He, what he's talking about is they were immersed into the teachings and the life and the way by learning the Ten Commandments. By walking over the sea, they were delivered. They experienced. The whole thing was baptism. And in a sense, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about conversion. We're talking about a new identity. When Jesus says, go to all nations, make disciples of them by baptism, he's talking about care enough about people's spiritual, eternal salvation that you share me with them so that they will convert. They will change from, from living in their sins, in the darkness of their sins, and they will become a new creation. By the way, how many verses do we have that all over the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 2, for we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, according to his mercy, gave us Jesus Christ. You see, there's a, we used to walk this way, now we walk this way. It's, baptism is speaking about an exchange of identity. People, some people misunderstand Christianity, and I get it. It's really easy to do, um, especially if you don't read the Bible. Matter of fact, I do know this. This is not a condemnation. This is just a fact. 60% of all Americans say that they're Christian. They call themselves Christians, 60% of all Americans. However, only 8% of all Americans believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Here's what I know. If that's true, 60% of people who say they're Christians aren't really Christians. Only, only 52% are non-Christians and only 8 are Christians. You say, how could that be? Because people misunderstand when you say live like Jesus, they think what Gandhi thought. They think that means just do what Jesus did. 
but it's impossible to do what Jesus did without a conversion. In other words, you have to be baptized from the Holy Spirit above through faith in order to have the power to live like Jesus. This is talking about conversion. By the way, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. He's talking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious elite leader. He's a conservative. He knows the scriptures. Backwards and forwards, he comes up to Jesus at night, and he says to Jesus, he says this, he says, "Um, Teacher, we know that you are from God because you could not do the things that you do if you were not from God. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, oh, great, why don't you just uh, follow me then? He doesn't say that. He looks at Nicodemus, the most religiously trained leader, the one who knows the Bible better than his disciples. He looks at him and he says, Nicodemus, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And the word again, by the way, means from above. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. He's like, how can I be born again? Did I go back into my mother's womb and come back out? He's like, no, you're not understanding. Unless there is a conversion, a baptism from the Holy Spirit from above, according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we are baptized in one spirit. That happens at the moment of salvation. There's an exchange, a conversion. Jesus talks about this also in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, he goes out of his way to meet a woman who's a Samaritan at the well. And check this out, y'all. This woman's been married five times. How graceful is he towards those who've been married many times? He goes to her, and he says, give me some water. And she says, sir, why do you talk to me? A woman, Samaritan. Jews don't talk to women, especially Samaritans. And, uh, and he goes, if you knew who asked you for water, you would ask him for water. And he would give you water welling up from the inside. What is he talking about? He's talking about a conversion. He's talking about you have to have a conversion in order to live like me, in order to do what I'm saying. And that's what Jesus is talking about with bapti- baptism. He's talking about an identity change. So he's using it two ways. He's saying there has to be faith in me so that you change on the inside through receiving me. And then he's saying when you baptize into water, it is showing that this has already happened. And here's the problem. Everybody say problem. When you read the Bible, a lot of times these things are together. So that salvation and baptism happened right after one another. Baptism always happened after belief, but it happened very close together. So he uses this word to have two meanings. Now, I do want to say this. I know that in non-denominational church, we have people from many faith backgrounds as far as Christian denominations go. I understand that. Lots of people, and there's lots of grace here because we're non-denominational church. But I will say this. When you study baptism in the New Testament, and I did this this week. I went through every instance that baptism was mentioned in the New Testament. Here's what I found. Baptism always occurs after someone believes. Never before. And so, um, and here's, here's what's very interesting. There's two illustrations of this that are really powerful because there's two people in the New Testament in Acts who were baptized before they got baptized again. Now, that'll send you for a while. You say, well, who was that? In Acts chapter 8, we got this Ethiopian eunuch 
who is traveling to Jerusalem. And he's going to worship at Jerusalem. And he's on his way back from Jerusalem. Well, this Ethiopian eunuch is a convert to Judaism. Do you know what you had to do in order to be a convert to Judaism? You had to get baptized. And Philip is sent to intercept this guy by the Holy Spirit. And Philip sees that this guy's reading out Isaiah 53 as he's, as he's walking next to him. And Philip says, do you know what you're reading? And he says, no. Philip explains to him the gospel and how Jesus is here. And then the Ethiopian eunuch looks up and he sees water and says, I should be baptized. He's already been baptized. Why did he want? Because he wants to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he wants to identify that he is dead in his sins, but because of Jesus, he will be risen one day. He understands what baptism is. It's a picture. We have again in Acts chapter 16. There's a guy, uh, two guys actually, that were John the Baptist's disciples, and they run into Paul. They've never heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never heard about the one that John preached was to come after him. And Paul encounters them, and they had received the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. And after they hear Paul, they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They receive the Holy Spirit, and they are baptized again. And so we see this over and over that it is you cannot force someone to be baptized. You have to allow them to choose it because it's them displaying their faith before people. Um, I don't particularly, I know there's a lot of people in here like John MacArthur. I don't like everything he says. Um, I like, well, you could say that about me too, I'm sure. Um, sometimes he's really hard on things that should be graceful. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I don't like that. But he does say a lot that I do like. And he does say this. He says, if someone will not identify publicly with Christ in baptism in front of Christians, then it's doubtful they will identify with Christ in front of the world. That's pretty true. If we won't claim Christ in front of our family, why would we do it in front of people who aren't Christian? And... Um, I think that uh, we need to take that seriously. And by the way, I'm not saying that uh, being baptized in water saves you. You know, that's not true. Everyone points to the thief on the cross. He's the scapegoat for everything. The thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you enter the kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, be baptized. Get down off this cross and be baptized. No, he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. But then again. Obedience is what Jesus expects in this passage. Okay, so baptism comes through this convert or this conversion experiences baptism. And there is a second part of making disciples. It's not only enough to have a conversion. And the reason why I know that is because when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, He sends the Holy Spirit to change us on the inside. But there's one thing He doesn't do. He doesn't take sin out of us. He forgives us for the penalty of our sins, but he does not take sin out of us. And in the New Testament, every time you, were, you hear the word flesh, it's talking about the sinful nature. Therefore, in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says it this way, do not, walk, or do not walk according to the flesh, instead walk by the Spirit. You see, we have a choice after we receive Christ, whether we want to live according to sin or whether we want to live according to the Son. 
We have a choice. And what determines what we choose? It's what we feed ourselves. It's what we eat. It's, it's, uh, it's the word of God as we're being taught it. That's why Jesus says not only convert them, baptizing, but teaching them. It's over a long process of the entire life of a Christian. By the way, Jesus modeled this everywhere he went. It's crazy. As Westerners, I'm not really knocking education. I just, I think we've done ourselves harm sometimes when we think of discipleship as classroom discussion where we sit at a table and take notes. I know a lot of people take notes at a table and don't do any discipleship, and I've been one of them. I know people take discipleship classes, don't disciple. And the truth is, is that what did Jesus do? Here's what he did. I'm pretty sure when Jesus sat out to teach discipleship, he gathered all 12 apostles. He sat them in a room. He clicked on a PowerPoint. And he said, I want you to take copious amounts of notes. That's not, everybody say that's not what he did. Okay, he didn't do that. But it doesn't mean he didn't teach. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? He sat on the Mount. Everybody sat on the Mount and he was up on it and he started teaching. Okay, it was very didactic, but it was as they were living to each, with each other. Now, here's the reason why I say this. Because so many people don't disciple because they think it's the pastor's job because he knows how to preach. So many people don't disciple because they think they need to put a PowerPoint together. And that's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did, he taught, he taught the Ten Commandments. Sermon on the Mount. He said, you remember these? You know, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone says Raka against his brother has already committed a murder. You've heard that he was expounding teaching. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 24, did you know Jesus taught them about the end times? He wasn't shy about it. He wasn't in these churches that avoids the topic because it's such a hard topic. No, he, he, he tackled it on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24. You know, Jesus talked about legalism more than almost anything else. Every time the Pharisees were there, he talked about legalism, talked about self-righteousness, talked about humility. Jesus talked about grace. He fed a consistent diet to his disciples about grace. He talked about the parable of the Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son. And he kept on showing. He showed them meeting at the woman at the well who's been married how many times? And he approached her anyway. Whoa. Radical. I love Jesus. Teaching. We can't make disciples without teaching them God's word because we have a battle going on inside of us. We have the flesh and the spirit raging war. There's an old Cherokee legend about a grandfather teaching his grandson about life. And I, and, and I want to quote it. This is what it says. A fight is going on inside of me, grandson. It's a terrible fight and it's between two wolves. One is evil, he is anger. Sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, kindness, humility, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside of you, grandson, and inside of every other person, too. The grandson thought about it for a second. And then he asked his grandfather, well, which wolf will win? 
And the grandfather looked at him and said, the one you feed. The one you feed. And, uh, that's true with discipleship. So I've told you a lot about baptism. I've told you a lot about teaching. And a lot of it honestly was heady, especially baptism. I mean, I understand that. But let's keep this simple. Everybody say simple. Discipleship is simple. And uh, I was praying about this week, and I'm like, Lord, I even called my best friend. I said, you know, Chris, man, this thing sounds so heady to me. I hate when I'm teaching so heady. Uh, you know, and he said, Jason, why don't you just share your story of discipleship? And then I started thinking, how have I been discipled? You ever thought about that? I've never thought about that. In all, all the years I've preached, I've never thought, how did people disciple? Because obviously I had to be discipled to get to where I am now, right? I mean, I had to be somewhere, and I started thinking if I, could, if I could think about how I'd been discipled, I could pick out the principles of discipleship, and then I could go back to the Word and see if those were true, because I never want to preach a sermon based on myself outside of God's Word. That would be bad, 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 right? That's experience forced onto the Word, but there are some truths in my life, and I know many of you have heard my testimony I don't want to belabor that, but I do want to share with you how I was discipled. So you're going to get a heavy dose of it again. I was saved at 12 years old. Um, and the story of that goes like this. It was a kid. He was 12 years old who discipled me. Everybody say 12 years. Yeah, he was 12 years old. He discipled me. He asked me one day, hey, Jason, do you want to go with me to Sunday school? It's really fun. Why don't you come to church with me? And I said, sure. I was in a really bad place. See, this is all God ordained. God's working behind the scenes. So I decided to go to Sunday school with him. His name was Brian Powell. He's now a state trooper in Texas. And I went to Sunday school with him. And the second week, I heard a pastor. His name is Dr. John Gross, and he preached a sermon. And I sat in a pew right about here, three-quarters back, and I heard in that message that I was a sinner who deserved God's wrath. And I already knew that. The weight of sin on my shoulders was crushing as a 12-year-old because I had little supervision my whole life. Crushing. Open TV, open everything, and no supervision. And so there's guilt and there's weight of sin on my shoulder. And I heard that Jesus Christ, God loved me so much that even though I was his enemy, that he sent his son to die on the cross for me. And that his son rose from the grave and if I trusted in him, I would be forgiven of all my sins. And I remember tears in my eyes at 12 years old. I, I looked up to heaven and I said, God, I want you. I'm sorry for what I've done. And it was like... The dam broke. It was like the weight of all these years of yuck just lifted off my shoulder. I was free. I was free. And the next week, I was baptized because they followed up with me because they were a good church. And they said, you need to be baptized to show everybody your change. Because now you're in Christ when you weren't before. And so I was baptized. At 14 years old, so I, in the youth group from 12 to 14, I grew, grew like a weed. And all of those youth around me, I invited people to church, and I'll get back to that in a little bit. All those people around me, we were all discipling each other. And by the way, we weren't perfect, and there was sin there, for sure. I moved across the city of Houston an hour away 
And from 14 to 15, we commuted an hour back to church, me and my mom, which was a bad idea. Should have found a church where we lived. And I found no Christians in the school, and I found no Christians in my community, and I basically started starving for a Christian relationship. And at 16, I fell away from the faith until I was 22. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you name it, I probably did it. And it was very sad. Lo and behold, at 21 years old, my life was an all-time low. You know, I was living in my car. I told you that before. I was dealing drugs. My uncle interceded with me. He took me to Starbucks. And my uncle set me down, and he shared his life story of how in college he was dealing drugs and how he's falling away from God. And he, he shared how God used all his life to bring him back, and he shared the gospel with me. I didn't fully turn there, but I turned some way. I got sober and decided to join the Marine Corps. Hoorah. <laughs> so I went to the Marines, and I just exchanged alcohol for drugs, but I, I never really was particularly fond of it. It makes you feel terrible. But, um, you know, every time I drank, I drank to get drunk, that's for sure. And it was a life of debauchery still. And I went to Okinawa, Japan as my first duty station, served there. I had a girlfriend back in Texas. Um, it was a mess. I met her when I was a drug dealer, so go figure out who she's like. And um, I bought a wedding ring. I bought an engagement ring in Okinawa, Japan. I don't even know that I've told Chelsea this. <laughs> Trouble. Okay, let's wrap up with a prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord. <laughs> no, um, I I bought an engagement ring, I was going to get married to her, and um, I flew back to Texas, it had been a year apart, and uh, long story short, those 30 days, the first few days I proposed, she was hesitant, I could tell something was wrong, Um, after 30 days of partying and just just being young and dumb, I, um, I realized she was actually dating someone else who was a drug dealer while I was gone, which I'm no peach, I wasn't faithful either, but I was just hurt, just broken, just broken, and I had used all my money during those 30 days, right, so now I've got to go to my next duty station, which is Camp Pendleton in California, and all I've got is gas money, so, so I, I drive to Camp Pendleton, and I start sleeping in my truck, which is no big deal, I don't care, I'm a Marine at this point, sleeping in my truck, and, but it's still, you know, sleeping in a truck's just not fun in a, in a Ford Ranger single cab, it just doesn't, it's just not fun, and um, I remember I was talking to my mom on the phone. She goes, Jason, where are you at? I said, well, I'm in, I'm in El Paso on the side of the road sleeping in my car. She goes, hey, why don't you stop in at Dale's house in Phoenix, Arizona? Now, you've got to understand, Dale was my mom's singles pastor when she went to church when I was five before we fell out of church and didn't come back until I was 12 and then fell out of church again. Right, So Dale, I know, Dale is the singles pastor, and I'm like, in my mind, you know, spiritual warfare is real. And as I'm driving, I'm like, I would rather sleep on the side of the road, but it's very uncomfortable here. Um, may I, might, I said, Mom, I might stop by. And I ended up stopping by and sleeping at Dale's house and uh, Dale and Mo. <laughs> and that morning, I woke up, and I have one last drive to Camp Pendleton. I woke up that morning and. Dale, Dale, after breakfast, I'm sitting in a lazy chair. I remember it like it's yesterday. And Dale looks at me, and he says to me, Hey, Jason, have you ever heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
That was like a dagger in my soul. Why was it a dagger in my soul? Because I knew the gospel and I knew why he was asking me. He was asking me because there was no evidence in my life at all that would convict me in a court that I was a Christian. And so he was just loving me the best he could. And you know what? That started my road back to Christ. You see, six months later, I'm now in Camp Pendleton. I'm still partying, still uh, living like the devil. And, um, and my mom, she, she's been, she, see, she started going to church because she divorced my atheist stepfather. And she got back into church after so many years, kind of like me, but I wasn't there yet. And she was leading a divorce recovery class now with 20 plus ladies praying for me on a weekly basis. That's awkward. And I later got to meet them at her funeral and tell them thank you. Um, she, one day she says, you know, Jason, you've read that Left Behind book. And I said, well, Mom, I was on a ship for six months. I had nothing else to do. She goes, well, would you consider reading another book if I sent it to you called The Prayer of Jabez? And I'm like, Mom, if I read it, will you just quit talking to me about faith, please? And she goes, Sure. And so she sent it. Well, during this time, it's, it's on its way. During this time, I get knocks on the door from Marines who are sharing Jesus Christ with me in my dorm. See, see. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I, 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 okay, I'll go with you to church this Sunday. And I went to church, and it was horrifying. Horrifying. That pastor screamed the entire message. You think I'm bad? Like there was spit flying 50 feet and it didn't stop for like 35 minutes. I thought, oh, these guys are passionate and I'm never coming here again. <laughs> and I went home and uh, I lived like sin and I did something completely debaucherous one night and I, it's just unglorifying to God to even share the details. And the next morning, hungover, the prayer of Jabez shows up, and I read it because I'm so dumbfounded at the things I did the night before, and I read it about three-quarters of the way through the book. <laughs> you know, you can't escape the weight of God when he's wanting you to tap out. Three-quarters through the book, the Holy Spirit was so heavy on me that I pulled out my dog tags. I don't even remember what I read in the prayer of Jabez. I pulled out my dog tags, and on the dog tags, it says denomination. It said Christian. And it hit me. If I truly believe that you are the God who exists, I would not choose to live my life this way. And I hit my face in the middle of my dorm, and I cried like a baby. And I told God, please, please forgive me. Help me to live like you want me to live. I want to follow you. And I recommitted my life right there in the dorm. And I started praying for a Christian wife. And I met her four months later. She had a worship bulletin in her back seat from a church she went to. And I said, oh, that's a girl for me. And it was Chelsea, by the way. <laughs> and she did say yes the first time, which is just great. Praise God for his faithfulness. And, and, and over the years... We decided, I got out of the Marines, and we decided to make a home for ourselves, and we stayed in, in San Diego for a time. I went to a Christian college, and we joined a church called Shadow Mountain Community Church. About 5,000 people. It's huge. And in this church, I, I, was, I, I sat under a, a, an amazing pastor called David Jeremiah, 
And I learned so much about the scripture. I learned about grace versus legalism, the difference between a legalistic church and a grace church. I learned about spiritual gifts. And I heard I had a spiritual gift, and I started ushering. And I was the best usher you've ever seen. I opened that door with a smile. I took people to their seats. If I had cookies, I'd give it them. I never did. But if I had, I would have because I was that good. And then my Sunday school teacher came to me. Dr. Brian Moulton, and he said to me, hey, would you fill in teaching for me one Sunday? And I'm like, sure, I'll try anything. And I tried teaching, and, and I te- taught every once in a while for our newlywed class. And then I got involved with the Navigators and started teaching at the Marine Corps boot camp, which I said I would never go to again. And over the course of time, I found that God wanted me to disciple and to serve others the way I had been served. And fast forward. Fast forward almost 17, 18 years now, and this week I listened to a sermon from Timothy Keller. I listened to a sermon from James McDonald. I meditated on the Word of God. I prayed, and I was discipled this week as well. You say, Jason, why are you sharing all this? There's a reason. I want to share with you three principles of discipleship that's been true in my life as I look over my past, as I look at the Bible, and I want to pair them together. Here's the first one. Discipleship happens when we pursue others. Discipleship cannot happen if we don't pursue others. I've been studying a lot, and I just picked it up recently to try, try please pray for me. Give me God, give me self-discipline to finish my doctorate. So I've been reading, and, um, and I found out, incidentally enough, that since the 1970s, the Americans have declined in their civic involvement in all areas. There's a book, by the way, if you ever want to read it because you want to go to sleep. It's called Bowling Alone. It's written by a sociologist, about 500 pages. I recommend it if you want to go to sleep. And um, it's a real good book, though, but it's very heady. And he comes to this conclusion that the reason why Americans have declined in their involvement in community, in church, and in civics, like in in politics, in in their community and stuff is because we become so highly individualistic. The more wealthier we got, the more we bought homes, the more we bought cars and drove those cars into garages, closed the garage and turned on the TV. That's what's happened. And listen, you can't discipleship from the couch. I'm not saying don't have a TV. I'm just saying um, here's the principle that God teaches. This is what Jesus teaches. You cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow me. That must mean at some level some type of sacrifice. And uh, I know that. Here's the second thing. Discipleship happens as we're being discipled. You can't disciple someone if you're not being discipled. You've got to continually be poured in by, by other people so that you can pour into people. And here's the cool thing. Everybody say cool. I was discipled by a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old. And I'm going to share another little story in that time gap that I didn't remember until this week. I have a friend I haven't talked to for two years. His name's Eddie. He called me this week out of the blue, and we started talking. It was a total God thing. And he reminded me. You see, when I was 12 years old, I received Christ as my Savior. I had a best friend. Brian invited me to church, and I reached out to another guy named Eddie. And Eddie started coming to church, and a year later, Eddie received Jesus Christ as Savior at church camp. And by the way, we had two other friends like that as well. And so that 12-year-old discipled a 12-year-old, which discipled a 12-year-old. And 12-year-olds, you better be discipling someone. 
And after I fell away from faith, guess what? From the times I was 16 to 22, I have zero people in my life that I actually influenced for Christ that I could point to today. Zero. So you don't have to be a, uh, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Oh, you're right. But you're definitely not effective. And people are going to question, are you really a Christian? There's no one I can point to in that six years that, that I influenced for Christ. And then I came back, and this is cool. Everybody say cool. <laughs> this is God. This is God. <laughs> Listen, I came back to God at 22, got married. When I got married, we moved to Santee, California. Santee, California, we moved into a, what was it, was it a duplex? Moved into a duplex, and um, <laughs> there was another guy. His name was Eddie. The same guy that I invited to church at 12 years old, he got married. He joined the Navy. I don't suggest. He joined the Navy, and then he found himself in San Diego, and they bought a house two blocks away from us. And guess what I did? I invited him to church, and he came to church for the first time in six years. He came back to church. And then I got to share the gospel with his wife, and his, and his wife received Jesus Christ as her Savior. And fast forward years later, unfortunately, Amanda, she had stage four breast cancer. And she had always in the past wanted me to pray for her family who may not know Christ. And one day, I had the fortunate experience of driving down to Louisiana and overseeing the funeral of Amanda, and I preached the gospel to her and whole family. Listen, this is discipleship. This is it right here. And this week, I got a phone call from Eddie out of the blue. And at the, I didn't tell him about this sermon. I didn't tell him anything. Matter of fact, I put all this into the sermon because of what he said. He said to me this, Jason. Now he goes to church and he has a family. He works for NASA. He said, Jason, I just wanted to let you know, I never told you this, but I want to thank you for inviting me to church and sharing Christ with me and always talking to me about faith. And in my mind, I'm like, well, there's six years I didn't. But we discipled one another. And uh, here's the third principle. Discipleship happens when we're honest. Do you remember my story about Del Cronemeyer, who I stayed the night at his house, and he looked at me and said, do you know the gospel? He could have been like, you know what, that's in America, we've gotten weird, kind of yellow belly-ish. We don't talk about things that truly matter because we don't want to offend anyone. And I would say, get over it. Jesus offended tons of people. You see, see, it's okay to offend people, just don't do it out of love, or don't do it out of wrath or, or guilt or judgment. Do it out of love. And, and there was nothing but love in Dale when he asked me, do you know the gospel? And I knew it. I wasn't offended, but you know what God did? He took that seed and he started using it. And six months later, I turned back to God. It's really hard to fight God. You don't ever win. You might as well give up now. What's our purpose? Let's go ahead and close this out. Will you all stand up with me, please? This is our new purpose statement for Lazy Mountain Bible Church. Will you all please repeat with me what's on this screen? Lazy Mountain Bible Church exists to equip people to live like Jesus and share him with others. May you go and do that for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength, Lord God. Give us the strength only through your spirit. Lord God, we pray 
Help us to list the people in our lives that we need to disciple. And we thank you for all those who poured into us. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us a life full of people that we're able to lead your throne, lead to your throne. Help us, Lord God, to be fed and to abide in you, Jesus, the true vine, so that we might bear true fruit. It's in your name we praise, Jesus. Amen. Hey, find someone you don't know this morning and say hello. God bless you. We'll see you next week.